0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: At Evernorth Health Services,
2: we believe costs shouldn't
1: get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioural health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. It's possible Landmark infrastructure legislation was passed in the last Congress. Now comes the work of getting it built. The Global X U.S. Infrastructure Development ETF, ticker PAVE, invests in dozens of companies helping shape the future of American infrastructure. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principle. Investments in infrastructure-related companies have greater exposure to the potential adverse economic, regulatory, political, and other changes affecting such entities. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the fuller summary
3: prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company. what i was really keen to do was try and fold everything all in together so you one minute you're in the atlantic the next minute you're in north africa the next minute you're in you know outside moscow or whatever it might be and and you you, you show how all things kind of fit together and how one campaign and one theater is affecting another
4: That was James Holland talking about the Second World War.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
4: Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of June 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our interview this week is with the military historian, author and broadcaster, James Holland. James is currently writing a multi-volume history of the Second World War, entitled The War in the West. And the second book in the series, focusing on the years 1941 to 43, has just been published. Putting the questions to James for us was the historian and author John Buckley, and the location for the interview was London's Imperial War Museum. Here's how they got on.
1: Second of three volumes. Ambitious
3: project. Why have you done it in the way that you have? Uh, it is ambitious, John, and um, um, I'm slightly um, <laughs> regretting it in some ways. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive undertaking. I suppose the main reason for doing it, it was because I had a sort of damasy moment some years ago. And, and actually, it was when I was doing a series of novels. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realised I didn't know enough about the minutiae of war. I didn't understand mm-hmm. how soldiers interacted, how they operated the kit they were using, weapons they were using. What was the difference between a standing patrol and a fighting patrol? All those sort of things. And one of the first things I did was go to see Lieutenant Colonel retired John Starling at the Small Arms Unit at Shrivenham Staff yeah. College, and I was passing an MG42, and I think I'd I think I'd just read a um, uh, a book in which the line said. The MG42 was, of course, the preeminent small arms weapon of the Second World War. And so I sort of relayed this to him. And he just turned on me and went, says who? Says who? And then in the next five minutes, brilliantly deconstructed why the MG42 wasn't quite so preeminent as everyone thinks it was. Mm -hmm. And it was an absolute enlightening moment for me. And I realised that there was this, this operational level of war. If you think of war as being on three levels, strategic, operational, tactical, the narrative of the Second World War other than you know, in the mass market, in films, in documentaries, in mass market books, mm-hmm. is almost entirely over the last 50 years concentrated on the strategic and the tactical, mm-hmm. i.e. high-level stuff, what Monty's thinking, what Patton's thinking, Eisenhower, Churchill, Roosevelt, Hitler, etc., and PFC, Schultz and his foxhole outside mm-hmm. Lo or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That operational level has just been removed entirely from the narrative And actually, when you reinsert that, a very, very different picture emerges. So I just got fed up of reading what I now call the declinist view, i.e., that sort of, you know, Britain was rubbish, you know, America was just sort of lucky having a huge um, arsenal, um, and the Germans were brilliant, but just, you know, led by a madman, and that's why they lost and they kind of beat their head against the Eastern Mm -hmm. Front. And I kind of think, all that is just wrong. And so I felt compelled to kind of, you know, there's no point whinging about it, do something about it, write about it in a kind of what I hope is a mass market way. Mm. Trouble is, Second World War, as you well know, is a massive subject Mm -hmm. and you can't do it in one book and you certainly can't do it in two, as I discovered. That was my original intention Mm -hmm. and so it ended up being in three and they're still pretty hefty.
1: You put a lot of emphasis on logistics and supply and the organisational side of things. How do you make that appealing? Because the reason why people haven't written about it, in part, is because it's actually difficult to make it entertaining or gripping and so on.
3: Well, the way I always do my books is I have my cast list of characters um, and you, you follow them through their experiences, in this case, throughout three volumes of The War. I mean, mm-hmm. some of them obviously don't make it all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them come and go. Some of them do go through the whole six years. Um, I, I suppose the way to do it is, is to tell the logistic story through key personalities again. So again, you're bringing it back to human drama. And frankly, when you're talking about, I don't know, the sort of uh, um, the development of the United States as the Arsenal democracy, for example, that is just full of the most incredible stories Mm -hmm. twists and turns more labour strikes in 1941 than any other year in American history for example Mm -hmm. um, you know Bill Knudsen uh, um, Henry Kaiser uh, um, Nelson and people like this you know Morgenthal you know these are really really interesting colourful characters very different characters and I don't think it's that hard to kind of bring them to life and bring their problems and and conundrums and challenges that are Mm -hmm. facing them. I mean, you know, everyone always assumes that America just emerged fully formed as the arsenal of democracy. Mm -hmm. No, not a bit of it. They had the potential. Whether that potential was ever going to be realised was a quite different kettle of fish.
1: Mm -hmm. Because there is this perception that America enters the war uh, in December 1941, that's that's it. It's game over, the Germans have lost, and that's it. It's just a matter of clearing up. What comes across very clearly is that that's not the case. Uh, It's a long Yes, and uh, how America transforms itself and how Britain is already going through that process, uh, still producing more and organising for the long term so in the way that the Germans haven't, comes across very effectively, I think, from what's in the book.
3: Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I I really, really strongly believe in all the research I've done that Britain and America absolutely made the most of the resources they had and and the potential they had. And both of them adopted a policy of steel, not flesh, you know, trying to minimise the number of man, amount of manpower you actually have mm. at the coal face of war, the front line. Mm. And broadly speaking, they were pretty successful at that by 1940 standards. You know, mm. you compare that to the Germans, which are kind of very foot-heavy, mm. um, and the Soviet Union even more so. Mm. Um, and ditto the Japanese and even the Chinese. I mean, compared to them, Britain and America have very, very small standing armies compared mm. to Germans and, and the Soviet Union, and, stuff. and you know I would argue that's just being efficient and sensible rather than making the most of what they've got. Whereas what you see with the Germans is they're constantly not making the most of their very already meagre resources. Mm. And they just make themselves the situation worse by kind of spending money and focusing on things that they shouldn't be focusing on, or, or perhaps might not be. Mm. To be prioritizing in a different
1: mm. way, I suppose. Mm. Mm. I think there's a big contrast between the way the the Allies, the Western Allies, approach the war, how Germany approaches it, because of this idea that the Germans are cutting edge in terms of their tactical stuff and thinking, and you know, loosely called Blitzkrieg, or they quite you know, emphasize that it's not quite like that. Um, but what's interesting is that. What comes out is that Germany's fighting a very old-fashioned kind of war, whereas the British and the Americans are fighting a more modern war, which is technologically based. They're, as you say, keeping casualties down, and that's something which kind of begins in that era and carries on post-Second World War, their approach to how you fight. Uh, compared with the Germans and the Soviets,
3: yeah, I think that is. I think that is surprising because you do think that the, the perception is that the Germans are at the cutting edge of all kind of military advances, and they're just not. I mean, you've only got to look at the Germans in nineteen thirty nine, nineteen forty one. You know, old fashioned nineteenth century tunics, jack boots, mm-hmm. lots of leather. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whichever you know, any sensible army would. Have long since got rid of Mm -hmm. because it's pointless it's expensive and it rots when it gets wet and goes brittle and all those sort of things i mean what's the point of having a jack boot when you could have an ankle boot Mm -hmm. makes no sense whatsoever Mm -hmm. apart from it it makes you look sartorially good and Mm -hmm. of course what the nazis are doing in the 1930s is it's a nod to their perceived military prowess of the 19th century and and beyond Mm -hmm. um but with their new nazi slot and it's kind of saying come on in, the water's warm, regain your German pride, put your chest out, look the part, get the fro line. And of course, that's fine if you're going to win in six weeks. You can afford to have expensive leather boots and, and you know, long great coats and all the rest of it. But if the war goes on for six years, you can't. And I mean, you know, one of the most devastating documents I've discovered in my research was the, the German Military Archives in Freiburg. And it was a memo that was signed by Hitler but written by George Thomas, who was then, as you know, the the head of the uh, Economic Department of the General Staff. And it said, we have to stop making such complete and economic aesthetic weapons. Mm. We've got to stop making such complete and aesthetic weapons. Mm. This was written on the 3rd of December 1941, so Mm. four days for Pearl Harbour, just as everything's going pear-shaped on the eastern front opposite, you know, in front of Moscow. And it sort of... Yes, you absolutely do need to stop making such complete anaesthetic weapons. But it's also acknowledgement that they have been quite consciously up until that point. Mm. I mean, the MG34, I mean, I've got one in my study, as you do. (laughs) Uh, And it comes with a spare barrel... And that's got nine inspection stamps on it, mm. each one of which is just completely pointless and a waste of time. Mm. And it also comes with a little box of goodies. Mm. Um, there's a little oiler with just an amazingly delicate little chain that links mm. the main cap of the oil, oiler with the lid in case you kind of lose it. <laughs> I mean, and of course, the box it comes in is that the, all the tools come in is made of wood and leather. Mm. I mean, it's just so over the top and ridiculous. Mm.
1: Of course, it has massive implications which you bring out in terms of supply lines, logistic networks and so on, the, the huge amount of kit that the Germans have to deploy because they just hoover at whatever they can from all over Europe in order to shove it into, say, the, uh, the war on the Eastern Front. And they're gathering all this material up, but then they've got to keep it moving, keep it going. So you're increasing massively the pressures on your transport network, your supply lines and so on, and the, you've got a multiplicity of different kinds of kit and equipment. It's just a bafflingly uh, foolish way to run a war.
3: Absolutely. And this is, I mean, you know, and also this sort of, the fundamental lack of, I mean, if you just go back to the, back to the start of the war and you think about um, those early tactics, I mean, all they're doing is exactly what they've always done. I and mean, Vegan's Creek is what we now call Blitzkrieg tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's a it's rapid war of manoeuvre. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something they've been doing since, you know, beyond Frederick the Great. Mm-hmm. And they have to, because they're short of resources. So the only way they're going to win is mm-hmm. by a kind of lightning strike that often balances their enemy and they surround them and mm-hmm. it's all over. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work very quickly, history should have told them that it's never going to work. It's kind of all or nothing in very quick order. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it unravels pretty swiftly. I mean, the Battle of Britain is the first big check.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, obviously, Soviet Union is another one. Mm-hmm. Wasting time in Greece and Crete. I mean, what is the point of the Crete campaign strategically? I mean, it mm. achieves absolutely nothing, or
1: very, very little. So do you see the Mediterranean campaign as a distraction and the Italian alliance as an, uh, a liability to Germany?
3: Uh, unquestionably, yeah, mm. because, you know, certain, they're no longer fighting on two fronts they're against Britain and in, in the West. They're also fighting on the southern front, as well as preparing for the biggest clash of arms the world has ever known, which, mm. of course, is Barbarossa, the invasion mm. of the Soviet Union. And... You know, let's think about Crete, for example, which is always seen as sort of one-way traffic, you know, great failing of the British and all Russia, which it was, you know, it should never have been lost. But why are the Germans undertaking it in the first place? I mean, it's absolute insanity. You know, using the, those fashion makers, the paratroopers, you know, they're the, the, the most incentivized, most up-for-it troops. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely slaughtered. But more importantly, they, you know, they lose some two hundred and fifty of their transport planes, which are really in short supply. Mm. And boy, are they going to need them in the Soviet Union. Mm. And if the strategic benefit of capturing the airfields on Crete is sort of neutralised, you know, literally just over a month later, when the Allies capture key airfields in Syria, mm. which is sort of equidistant, sure, you know, but Alexandria is equidistant from Syria and from Crete, so you know. Know, which Muppet kind of thought that was a good idea?
1: <laughs> <laughs> but talking of bad ideas and bad decisions, um, the Hitler's declaration of war on the United States a few days after Pearl Harbour must score very highly as the most bizarre grand strategic decision made by anybody during the Second World War.
3: Yeah, but isn't it interesting? So the reaction to Hitler is almost exactly the same as the reaction of Churchill. Ah, oh, great, it's all mm. going to be OK then. Mm. Mm. And all this does is just belie his total unsuitability for the job he's given himself, which is commanding all yeah. German armed forces. I mean, what do you, do you think, think that motivated him? What, what, I mean, you, you, you kind of... I think it's a total him. misreading of the, of the strategic situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, his geopolitical understanding was absolutely woeful, and this is because he's a very small-minded man. Mm-hmm. His worldview is incredibly narrow. It's kind of my way or the highway on absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. He views everybody, whether his be he friends or enemies, through the same prison of his own narrow worldview... And he can't get inside the head of anybody else. Mm. So he, you know, he hasn't traveled. Um, he doesn't read any languages, he's not really interested in global affairs, apart from running the show. Mm. You know, he's utterly inept. Mm.
1: And do you think there's a, there's what does come across effectively is the difference in mindset and attitude between the Western Allied leaders who Church and Roosevelt and the kind of personal relationship, they get on. Mm. Um, their stats tend to get on most of the time. They do have differences, but they work together closely.
3: Yep. Um, well, as you know, I'm, I, you know, I think Anglophobia in Americans has been massively overplayed.
1: Mm, mm. And I, I, Whereas in comparison with the, the Germans and the Italians and even with the Japanese, they don't really get on. They're no. most of the time despising each yep. other and issuing dictates which they ignore. Um, and for the Germans, they, they just see the talent as complete liability. They don't really, in the end, get much out of the Japanese alliance that they initially think they might. It's just totally dysfunctional. That's what comes out, um, the inability
3: of the Axis powers to put together grand strategy. Absolutely, but again, it all comes down to the top. Mm. You know, there is... The people running the show the people who are really making decisions on German strategy are people who have no understanding of diplomacy, mm. who have no geopolitical understanding in this broadest sense whatsoever. Mm. And, you know, they're the wrong people to be leading mm. Germany into, into mm. you know, yet one more campaign after another. Mm. I mean, it's very interesting how, you know, criticism against British historians is that all we ever are is obsessed with the with Battle of Alamein and, and North Africa and the Mediterranean, and it was just a sideshow. You know, my research into this just mm. leads me to think that the person who's really obsessed about the Mediterranean is Hitler himself. Mm. I mean, he just refers to it all the time. Mm. The amount the he reinforces the Tun- Tunisia, for example, is oh, mm. just extraordinary. Mm. He's absolutely paranoid about mm. the soft underbelly of Europe. You know, ironically, always used against Churchill, mm. but actually he was quite right. It mm. you what's know, the soft underbelly at the mm. time? Mm.
1: And the as the, the you say about Tunisia with the. Uh, the troops they pump in, and the, particularly air resources that they put in just before the fine collapse in North Africa, the losses are equivalent to the same Stalingrad. So I mean, in terms of the in terms of material, it's yeah, greater. It's it's just a huge calamity for yeah. for um, for the Axis powers which come across.
3: Well, I mean, you, if you you know, there is a people I think quite often confuse um, boots on the ground with strategic importance, and the two are not necessarily mutually mm-hmm. compatible at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is this this tendency to think of the Eastern Front as being the campaign because it 's so soldier heavy so mm-hmm. number heavy. But, you know, there is, you know, as you well know, I mean, you know, you wouldn't, uh, an American would not say that Guadalcanal was not a highly important battle. And yet the number of troops, because of the size of Guadalcanal mm-hmm. and the location and all the rest of it, was actually quite small. Mm-hmm. Battle of Britain, no one mm-hmm. would deny that was a game changer. But mm-hmm. actually the number of pilots involved and aircrew and all the rest of it was tiny, really, mm-hmm. compared to what was to come.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You can only put into your battle what there is room
2: to place. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, what is really interesting about the Mediterranean in the summer of 1943, for example, is that the Luftwaffe loses something like 700 aircraft between June and I think mm-hmm. September 1943 mm-hmm. on the Eastern Front, mm-hmm. and they lose something like 3,450.
1: And in it, Mediterranean. And in <laughs> terms know. of the, the demands on economies, of course, air power is much more resource intensive. Of course, 30, 40, sometimes at various stages of the war, maybe higher figures. Of the uh, percentage of German effort yeah. is devoted to air resources, and sort of building tanks and guns and yeah, things, it's much smaller in terms of the economic yes. output.
3: Exactly. So you know, you you simply cannot say that you know the Mediterranean is is a sideshow. I mean, it just absolutely isn't at all. Mm. And you know, even fifty divisions worth of mm. German troops, as it comes once Italy's out of the war, mm. which of course is volume three. I'm not I yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but you know, jumping the gun. But but mm. but you know, it is not a sideshow. You know, it. it Strategic importance is strategic importance. It's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with the resources you pry into it. It's, it's what the outcome is and the importance of the outcome.
1: Yes, and as, you, as you say, the, the, um, the benefits of the Allies, when the, uh, Italy eventually goes and drops out of the war, is that the Germans then have to deploy large numbers troops into the Balkans to hold yep. it down, which of the course the yep. been doing. Yep. So, again, it's an extra drain on
3: resources. I mean, I would definitely argue that, that you know, in terms of the war in the West, and, and you know, Britain remains... Germany's number one enemy, right up until the middle of the war, well, until mm. America comes in, mm. um, is about the Atlantic, mm. and people always tend to view. I mean, one of the beauties of doing, um, or, or one of the one of the privileges of doing a, a big narrative sweep, like the one I'm undertaking, is mm. that you can show how everything works together. There's been a tendency to do a book on the Battle of the Atlantic or write a chapter, you know, in a big big sweep Mm. in the Second World War, you do a chapter or here and there on the Battle of the Atlantic. What I was really keen to do was try and fold everything all in together. Mm. So you one minute you're in the Atlantic, the next minute you're in North Africa, the next minute you're in, you know, outside Moscow Mm. or whatever it might be. And and you 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 show how all things kind of fit together and how Mm. one campaign and one theatre is affecting another, which they all do of course. And the Battle of the Atlantic is, you know, if you want to defeat Britain, you have to cut off her access to global resources. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And Germany never puts that much emphasis onto it. You know, it focuses on, the, on on attacking Britain where Britain is strongest and mm-hmm. not where she's weakest. Mm-hmm. Why do you think...
1: I, I mean, I entirely agree, and I, I think um, in the first two books you, you capture the element that the Battle of the Atlantic has effective the Germans, already blown it by the spring of 1941. If they ever had a moment... It was in that first winter of 40, 41, yeah. the, the major part of the campaign. But why did it take the Allies until 1943 to win the campaign then, and finally put it to bed?
3: Well, because because the, dem- the challenges of destroying the U-boat force are enormous. Mm. Um, you know, they're not going to give up in a hurry. They keep going. And, and, you know, intelligence changes as, as rotors and codes get changed on Enigma machines. Mm. But also just to, to actually completely close the... The, the, the protective gap over mm. the Atlantic, which is a vast place, mm. requires unbelievable mm. technology. And this, again, is where you see, I, f- I think you can argue that the allies are focusing their technological know-how mm. in the right areas. Mm. The cavity magnetron, for example, mm. which enables you to have much smaller radar. You no longer mm. need these huge, great lattice
2: mm. sort
3: of disks. You sure. can have something much smaller, which can fit on a, on a, on a Wellington or mm. a very long range Liberator or on a Destroyer mm. or a Corvette. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these technological advances—the focus is on protecting their overseas resources. And mm-hmm. of course, once you've—but that does take time. Sure. But actually, mm-hmm. the the advances are unbelievably fast. Mm-hmm. If you sort of think, you know, from 1940 nineteen forty to May nineteen forty-three, you know, that's three years. Mm-hmm. And you think, <laughs> yeah, what wasn't achieved in Afghanistan in thirteen, for example,
2: mm-hmm.
3: of all that know-how? I mean, it is it is. The development of the Canadian Navy, for example, is unbelievable. I mean, Mm -hmm. boy, do Mm -hmm. they punch above their weight. But there are all sorts of sort of vicissitudes and changes and things Mm -hmm. that are going on that mean that the battle does continue. And, of Mm -hmm. course, what is happening is that the Germans are belatedly recognising that actually U-boats is where it's at. Mm -hmm. And so they're producing more. The more U-boats there are, the more you've got to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is still a challenge for Mm -hmm. the Allies. Mm -hmm. But the outcome of the Battle of the Atlantic is no longer in doubt, I think, after May 1941.
1: No, in terms of the, the, the longer term, and I, 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 I tell you about the, the technological aspects of it with the RF Coastal Command and so, for example, that you, you mention in the in the book, and the developments they make up until the end of 1941, I think Coastal Command sinks one U-boat. Yep. And from forty two to forty they're accounting like 30 40% of German U-boats destroyed yep. at various stages. And so-
2: that's
3: because... You know, they, they work out things that, that you know, they have um, lamps on the, on the plane so they can actually operate at night. You know, most U-boats go from A to B. U-boats are not proper submarines, they're submersibles, most of them.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and so most of their travelling is from A to B is on the surface, that's where they're their fastest. And of course it's best to do it at night because that's hardest to see.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Suddenly you've got very long-range um, Coastal Command mm-hmm. aircraft and, of course, um, um, planes from the United States as well and Canada are now operating with lights. Mm-hmm and with onboard radar, mm-hmm. and suddenly they can get these guys. Mm-hmm. And so there is nowhere where the U-boats are safe, but mm-hmm. that does take time to get to that sure. position where, you, where every part of the Atlantic is covered. Mm-hmm.
1: I think the, the disparity in kind of the way the two sides fight the war can be shown that the, I mean, the loss rate of U-boats goes through the roof in the middle part of the war onwards, from forty-eight, forty-two, forty-three 42 43 in particular. I think the, the death rate of German submarine crews, is like 75, 80% during yeah, the Second World War. 75, 80%, I mean, it's just unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? Whereas overall allied
3: shipping in the war is 0.4%. Mm. So one point four percent in the battle of the Atlantic. Mm. I mean, know, something like eighty-four percent of all convoys get everyone escaped. Mm. Just as narratively we tend to focus on the ones that don't. Mm. So it seems like it's sort of hellish connage. Now it is a hellish carnage, and no one wants to be on a kind of, sort of on a on a merchant ship in the middle of the Atlantic when it's blown up. I mean that's a really bad end. Mm. Um, but we have to kind of mm. step back from that mm. and look at it dispassionately and say, mm. actually. Mm. Perhaps it wasn't quite as bad as everyone thought it was.
1: How important do you think um, thinking of what grows out of the Second World War? Because we, we have this perception that the special relationships is always wheeled out between Britain and America. It's just a, a given and a constant. But that you could argue the Second World War 1941 onwards is where it really starts to crystallise and come together Mm. prior to that point there hadn't
3: been that kind of relationship in the same kind of way no Um, well Britain um, was the old enemy wasn't it yeah exactly Bunker Hill and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it Um, so absolutely yeah, actually, I think, I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of American historians in the last 30, 30 40 years have been sort of, you know, they have displayed a certain amount of anglophobia. Mm. And I think that's because, you know, they've always been interested in their history and they've grown up with the American Revolution in mm. 1776 and all, and they're predisposed mm. to kind of sort of stick the knife in a little bit.
1: Yes. And I, 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 somebody told me that on the, um, the anniversary of the burning of the White House, or what becomes the White House. Yeah. Like uh, in 2014, uh, the British Embassy in America sent um, to, to the White House a cake with flames and things coming out of it for the White House and the Americans didn't quite see the funny side of it in the way that the Brits did. Um, <laughs> so th- there's quite a lot to get over and yeah. really I think from the, you, you show the, the Roosevelt and Churchill and their staffs coming together and working together with combined staffs and so on in a way that no other power's really done until that point. That's kind of the point at which the The relationship between Britain and America grows and continues ups and downs. Well, the the truth of the matter is, is is that
3: America um, has been isolationist and has, and traditionally so, and even though it plays its part in the First World War and the very end, you know, it has always, always in its history, been isolationist, Mm -hmm. really, and um, you know, look after themselves first, and Mm -hmm. that's a entirely understandable um, strategy. Suddenly, in the in the Second World War, they're becoming a global superpower that we all know them to be now. Mm. And that's when they emerge into that position, in that position of taking over from Britain as as a kind of, sort of preeminent kind of international power and global policeman and all the rest of it. Mm. Now, at the time of the war, there is such a, a compulsion from the senior leadership to all get on and and, mm-hmm. you know... Forge friendships, forge relationships, work for common cause, and all the rest of it, and that's driven absolutely from the very top—Churchill and Roosevelt, but also down. You know, you know, um, Eisenhower and people like that have a, and Beadle Smith and Brooke and all these people have a huge played a huge part in this as well. It's it's a a Marshall, of course, you know. It's a, and so that's why at the end of the war you've got all you know in the second half of the war you've got this enormous levels of cooperation, which is why I never really understand those historians Mm. that kind of constantly bang on about how much, how many arguments there were. Mm. I mean, I really don't think there were at all. Post-war, Britain is sort of left behind a little bit as Mm. America continues its upward journey. Mm. And I think the Second World War, yes, we were side by side in that big global moral Mm. crusade. Mm. Um, But I think what compels it now is more, you know, shared language and Mm. all Mm. that sort of stuff. I mean, Mm. I think the Second World War plays a part Mm. I think, but, I think um, as time progresses, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's weakened.
1: I, I was intrigued by that comment at the end of the the, the, BBC, uh, the, the series, um, The World at War, that we are Stephen Ambrose, and said, what did Britain get out of the Second World War? And he said, well, not very much. But uh, it's an entirely true. There's a bit We've more to that ingest- that ingest- it. Well, <laughs> um, and I think there is a perception that at the, this, this marks a point with the transition from Britain to the United States, but it's not as clear-cut At the time, I think it's only seen with hindsight. And in the immediate post-war years, Britain is still perceived as uh, a kind of major global player. Mm. And it and takes a, Indeed, and it takes a, a decade or two for it to be clear that Britain no longer is. Yeah, I think, and, I, and
3: I think that's where a lot of the, 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 the sort of what I call the declinist view of the Second World War has come from. It's mm. come from people who've been, you know, the historians who've been young men in the 1960s when mm. Britain is quite clearly at the end mm. of the empire, mm. um, decline of Britain as a great power, three-day weeks of the 1970s and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, you know, that's where that comes from. Mm. And from the fact that the Germans are the only people who have fought the Russians. Well, indeed, indeed, and you know, huge surveys done post-war, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, the German senior commanders who were interviewed about that obviously kind of big themselves up a bit, mm-hmm. whilst at the same time being nicely deferential to their American captors. I mean, that mm-hmm. all—that's all just mm-hmm. human nature. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where a lot of this last fifty years of narrative has come mm-hmm.
2: from. Mm-hmm.
1: One thing that comes out in particular is the inefficiency and at times the kind of making a as you go attitude of the German military, which I think mm-hmm. you, you capture. Yet the perception is, in lots of pop history and coffee table books and things, is that the German military was superb. You know, the yeah. kind of great technocrats and so on. Why? Where does that come from?
3: Well, I, again, I think it is largely from the from the Cold War. I think it's from this this this, this notion that the Germans are the only people that fought the Red Army, mm. and you know, post nineteen forty five, that's a new enemy, and we want to learn how you go about. Mm. Smashing these incredibly boot-heavy mm-hmm. hordes mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. their kind of multiple rocket launchers and all the rest of it, and mm. display better uniforms
1: and, with uh, kind of sexy patterns and things and, and like. all that sort of stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah, and the and the and the Waffen SS um, camouflage patterns and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where it comes from mm-hmm. primarily, um, but also laced through with certainly from British historians sort of beating themselves up about the fact that Britain is in decline and therefore mm-hmm. how can we... Ever, you know, Americans, you know, by the 1970s, simply cannot believe that Britain could ever have been this great power. I mean, look at them now, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I think, I think that's where it comes from. But, but it doesn't hold up to any close scrutiny. And I think one of the problems is that by focusing on the strategic level and the tactical level, mm-hmm. you don't put any analysis into mm-hmm. that medium sure. operational level... Mm-hmm which is just then becomes lost knowledge. Mm. And where you do need to fall onto the operational level, you just fall back onto assumed mm. knowledge, mm. which has become a sort of truth, but actually isn't. Mm. And, and, you know, the training is... A kind of, I suddenly started looking into this training. Everyone's talking sort of on about how well the Germans are trained. So you think, well, OK, fine, let's have a look at that. Mm-hmm. So I went to some detail, did a lot of research into how Germans are trained. Mm. And at the end of the day, you realise that an American infantryman, a British infantryman and a German infantry they're all trained pretty much the same way Mm. there's only so many ways you can skin a cat Mm. I mean you know what are you going to do when you're training as an infantryman you're going to do rifle shooting you're going to strip machine guns you're Mm. going to do route marches you're going to do map reading you're Mm. going to learn to lay the land Mm. how to patrol Mm. it's all sort of the same and if you look at the training pamphlets Mm. what is astonishing is how similar they are Mm. the only difference is that in the back of a German one there's a huge section on horses which of course you don't (laughs) have on the mechanised British (laughs) and American one.
1: yeah indeed indeed and um I mean, there's a lot to be said that it's not just about the, the, the manner of the technical training and so on, it's a level of experience. And of the Germans course. get a huge lead in the first year or two of the war ahead of the British and obviously the Americans. Except so
3: that that class is, is frittered away. Yes. Massively. Yeah.
1: And they, they play a role in kind of developing an NCO class and so on which help stitch uh, inexperienced German soldiers into more effective units mm. at a kind of small level in periods of time because of the experience they've had and the experience of battle or something that troops refer to that you don't get from training, no matter how good it is, no, either German, British or American. No, and you, you simply can't do to be all arms training in the middle yeah. of
3: a war no. because there's just no opportunity to do it. You know, all the, all the you know, tanks and guns and stuff, they're all needed at the front. Mm, mm. So there is very little opportunity mm. for that. Okay. But, 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 you know, I, I would say, I mean... I mean, one thing for volume three is going to be the exponential growth of the Americans and how mm. quickly they learn. But I mean, you know, the Battle of Majorda at the end of the Tunisia campaign mm. is one of the most underwritten, undervalued battles mm. ever took place in the Second World War. Mm. It's, it, it works perfectly, and, it, and it's the absolute perfect all arms harnessing mm. of air power, armor, artillery, infantry infiltration tactics, mm. a battle plan that just works absolutely perfectly. And of mm. course, you know, to be a famous battle, it's got to last 10 days, it's got to be lots of sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, dodgy moments where, mm. you know, mm. fate hangs in the balance. Sure. You know, if, if it's all over in 24 hours, then the opposition must have been really, really liked. No, not at all. The opposition mm. and that final battle were pretty good
2: sure. German
3: mm. troops rather than mm. Italians. Mm-hmm. And... It's, it's really, really underrated, and it mm. just shows that mm. even by the spring of 1943, British Army has come a huge way in the war. It's grown from nothing to quite a large army, and one that understands what its capabilities are and mm. how to harness
1: firepower. Mm. How do you think important was leadership uh, in, during this period? Because you, you mentioned about Montgomery and so on, but for the British Army in North Africa at that time, to go through this transitional phase mm. between 1941 and 43 from the kind of mess they were in once the Germans turned up, and they have to move through a whole string of different commanders and things. How important do you think leadership? Well, I, I is think leadership is really, action. really
3: important. And so this I mean, to my mind, there's absolutely no question that the absolute nadir of the British Army is, I mean, yes, OK, Singapore, but 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 that's a sort of colonial police force rather than a proper army. In a way, yeah. um, I think is is the Gazala battle, which is just absolutely woeful. I mean, it should never ever have been lost. I mean, that's yeah. almost as bad as Crete, yeah. and it's it's. You know, lack of strong leadership. You know, Rich is completely out of his depth. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a brilliant staff officer, mm-hmm. absolutely hopeless at the front.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, lots of bickering commanders. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just an absolute mess, mm-hmm. and it should never have happened. I mean, the tragedy is there were people out there who just weren't promoted in the right way. I mean, I, I mean, Tucher is probably the greatest army commander we never had,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, and, and would have been a, an amazing choice mm-hmm. as army commander in when um, Cunningham was sacked sure. at the end of mm-hmm. 1942. I mean, mm-hmm. 41 rather. That mm-hmm. would have been a punt i would have liked to have seen happen mm. um and it might have all been over a lot quicker than that. Mm. you know the north African campaign might have been all over a lot, a lot quicker of course the architect of the final battle of ajurda as well mm. um you know there is a bit of kind of i mean i don't, i suppose the point i'm trying to make really in the book is that commanders need to be kind of sort of sifted out and mm. i think there's an awful lot of luck involved I mean, yes. you know, Slim becomes an amazing general, mm-hmm. but he isn't the finished article at the beginning of the First, Second World War, for example. No, you've got to kind all. of learn. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you sink and sometimes you swim and, and you, you, you have other chances. Other times you don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it might have been very different if O'Connor hadn't been captured, for example. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, these are imponderables. And sometimes you've got to... You've got to sack a few and mm-hmm. try a few and kind of trial and error and all sure. that sort of stuff. And I think that's what's going on in that kind of middle period. Mm-hmm. But let's not also forget that you know they're stretched. And, you know, they've got an awful lot of demands on their and, You know, Middle East mm. command is huge. Mm. It's got bigger and bigger the more the, the war has progressed. Mm. Demands on it are huge, and it's not entirely unsurprising. And really, in the big scheme of things, the kind of Gazala setback is is just that.
1: Mm. And uh, Montgomery comes in at just the right
3: time. Yeah, and he is the and right the person in the right place. Well, fit. the combination of him and Alexander. Yes, that's true. Alexander kind of gets written out of Yeah, bit, he does. He? Uh, it's really unfair. Mm. How, you know, how, it's Orgelet's command, it's Wavell's command, and then it's Montgomery's command. It's like, mm-hmm. no, I don't think so. It's, by that token, it should be Alexander's command. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think Alexander is massively underrated. I'm a big, big admirer of his. Mm-hmm. And I think, think he played an, every bit as important a part mm-hmm. in, um, in the victory in North Africa mm-hmm. as as uh, Montgomery did. First of all, kind of being that facilitator, sure. that kind of mm-hmm. of ruffled feathers, and that kind of bridge between the Middle East and London, mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, as army group commander in Tunisia, which I think he you know, he, he, he commanded brilliantly and, mm-hmm. and couldn't really fault it, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. And the,
1: the, the other character who comes out of Starsky Motion, of course, is Eisenhower, who is kind of a pivotal figure later in the war and so on. But at that moment, you start to see you don't have to be a battlefield commander to be a great general.
3: Yeah, and I think he really is. I mean, you know, he's, there's, there's obviously lots of shortcomings on Eisenhower, but he's a brilliant diplomat. He mm-hmm. absolutely gets... That importance of everyone getting on and, and what he does to secure that kind of chain of diplomacy at the highest level, I think, is brilliant. And he's very good on that kind of bigger picture stuff. I think he I think he he gets it. He understands his role, and he's again, he's a facilitator. He's a he's a smoother of ruffles, uh, and he's absolutely the right man in the in the right in the right place. I also think you know I think Clark is pretty impressive in mm-hmm. those early stages in the build up mm-hmm. to the American landings in. Mm. Um, in North Africa, you know, again, a brilliant planner. Mm. You know, underrated as a general, I would say. Mm. But again, more for Volume Three. <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs>
4: that was James Holland in conversation with John Buckley. The War in the West: A New History, Volume Two, The Allies Fight Back, nineteen forty-one to forty-three, is out now in the UK and US, published by Bantam Press and you can read a written version of this interview in issue 4 of BBC World Histories, which is on sale now. The latest issue also contains articles on the history of Africa, the Spanish flu, and lost cities. BBC World Histories is available in all good news agents now, and you can find out more information about it on historyextra.com. Meanwhile, the July issue of BBC History magazine has just gone on sale. This month's edition includes pieces on The Evacuation of Dunkirk, The Death of King John, Child Soldiers Through History, and Migration to America, among other things. You can get hold of our July issue in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops.
1: This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let The Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability.
0: Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30, 30,
1: ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month.
2: So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
4: $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's history weekend events are currently on sale. The events take place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and York from the 24th to 26th of November. And speakers include the likes of Dan Jones, Yanina Ramirez, Roy Hattersley and Alison Weir. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.